Welcome to Katusa First. If you haven't been here before, or maybe it's been a while, uh, let me kind of explain what we do here. So I usually preach for about three hours, um, and uh, half of it's in Greek and Hebrew. So I hope you've all been studying. Uh, jokes aside, what we like to do is we work our way through a book of the Bible at a time. And we just do that so we can't skip the hard stuff, because let's be honest, the hard moments in life are usually where you grow the most. And as I read scripture and study in my own time, I hit a lot of hard spots. There, it's not sometimes the difficult teachings of Jesus that I struggle with. Sometimes it's the easy ones. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's a really simple teaching, but the application of it is, is very difficult. But in trying to apply just the basic teachings of Jesus to my life, I find not only is it difficult, but I find I have to rely on Jesus to do Jesus-like things. And so as I wrestle in those difficult moments, what does it do? It draws me closer and closer to my Savior. We have been studying the book of Colossians. If you got your Bible, I want you to go ahead and turn there this morning. Some of you are cheaters. I didn't tell you what verse. Colossians chapter 2 verse 8 is where we'll be studying this morning. Colossians Chapter 2, verse 8. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and the New Testament. If you got it, would you say, I got it? All right, there we go. Um, before we begin reading, let me just remind you why Paul is writing this book at all. There is a pastor of this local church that Paul knows, but he's never met anybody in this church other than the pastor, as far as we know. Uh, he even says, most of you I've never met face-to-face. So he's writing this letter to kind of help out this young pastor that he has been mentoring, that he's been trying to disciple and help grow. And the pastor comes and says, hey, my church is insane. Like this whole Jesus thing just started and they're already messing it up, which sometimes when we think of the early church, we think of like the most perfect church ever. And a lot of times, pastors will say, I wish I had an Acts second chapter church, which is great. I would, I, you know, we all aspire to have that, but it doesn't take long before Acts 2 becomes Colossians 2, where all of a sudden there's problems within the church. And why does that happen? Why on earth is the church not perfect? It's because it's made up of you and I, and we're difficult. <laughs> we learn slowly. We are hard-headed, and so this is one of the reasons that we gather. Hey, when we gather on Sunday, it's because God is worthy of worship and praise. So we honor Him with our songs, and we honor Him by studying together and then loving those around us. But also, if you've ever been to a chiropractor, you never walk in just once, and he goes, crack, okay, you're good, never see you again. You need to go back the next week, the next week, the next week, because what he's doing is making minor adjustments until you're straight. And this is often what Scripture is for me. Every time I open my Bible, sometimes there's these big moments where like a light comes on and I see everything more clearly. But usually just what it is, is just a small adjustment. Sometimes you don't even recognize it, but you go a year, two years down the road and people begin to say, something about you is different. It's just those minor adjustments of showing up, being faithful, committing to gathering with the saints, to study God's word a little bit at a time. Hopefully these adjustments begin to change your life. So he's writing and he's trying to correct some errors that have happened in the church. And we got to a little bit of them last week and we'll get maybe to a little bit more this week. 
But if you got your Bibles, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, let's read together. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So as we begin, we read that first part last week, but um, I really want us to understand that Colossians is just Jesus-centered. Over and over and over again, the way he corrects the problem isn't by just showing up and going, here's your four problems, here's what you need to do. His main emphasis is you just need Jesus. You need Christ. You ever heard a grandma and you talk about somebody's kid who's acting up and that grandma said, mm, that boy just needs Jesus. Right? That boy just... And, and why is it that there's an older generation who thinks that, man, all, the, all these problems in the world, they just, mm, they just need Jesus. Why is that the solution? Because guess what? They just need Jesus. Now that sounds like a watered down answer, but it wasn't for Paul. Paul says, look, if I put Christ at center and you understand who Christ is and what he has done, then truthfully and honestly, all you need is Jesus. J.C. Ryle once said, Christ is all. These three words are the essence and substance of Christianity. We begin with Christ, continue in Christ, and end in Christ. And I hope as a church that we are Christ-obsessed. I, I, I hope you have friends that you annoy. Like, man, all you do is talk about Jesus all the time. I mean, I'm kind of, I'm kind of Jesus-obsessed. Because he's my all in all. Like we sing that song. And it's a great song. And isn't our worship team just doing an incredible job, man? I was just like, if you get me on front row, hands lifted, you know that I'm feeling it. Um, and so he, there's a couple of things that he says here. We're going to begin our study today in verse 9. So look at verse 9. He says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now, for most of you, this is no surprise, but for a lot of people, they are confused about the person of Jesus. A lot of people think that Jesus is just a wise teacher, that he just had good sayings. Like, there, there are wise teachings that come from all sorts of different people, right? Um, but Jesus isn't just a good teacher. Either he is God in the flesh, fully God and fully man. We often refer to him as the God-man. Or he is a crazy person. Because unlike other religious people who have, who have like started religions, right? You have um, Gandhi. Gandhi doesn't ever claim to be God. Gandhi would claim, hey, I know, I know the way. Buddha, Buddha never claims to be God. He simply says, I know the way. And this is throughout history... There's been a lot of people who say, hey, I know the way. Jesus Christ comes and says, I am God, I am the way. And this makes him unique and is either, uh, as C.S. Lewis says, either he's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord, and you have to decide. You have to decide, is he a liar, is he a lunatic, or is he Lord? I believe, as most of you here do, that if you study the scriptures, if you study history, if you study the reliability of scripture, you will come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. The whole fullness of deity dwelt. Now, 
why in trying to correct them is this important? Because whatever it is they're chasing after, it doesn't have the ability to fulfill the promise of hope or peace or whatever it is the way Jesus does. Because Jesus is the highest power. All power, rule, and authority belongs to him. You cannot graduate beyond Jesus Christ. Oftentimes in church, we graduate beyond Jesus. We start with Jesus, we get saved, we get baptized, and then it is very, very easy for the church to recommend legalism to you afterwards. Yes, you're saved by grace through faith. Now do all these things and Jesus will love you. But that is not the motivation that I want you to read your Bible. I'm not asking you to read your Bible or pray more often so that God will love you more. I tell my kids all the time, there's nothing you can say or do to make me love you less. And you know where I learned that from? That's my God. I learned that from my God. That while I was a sinner... He died for me. So if he loved me at my worst while I was dead in my sins and trespasses, as he's about to get to here next week, I have learned that there's nothing I can say or do to make God love me less. Because when he sees me, he doesn't see the version of me I see in the mirror. A complicated, difficult, some days good, some days stubborn, just, just the full range of humanity. Whenever you look in the mirror, that's what you see. And oftentimes you look in the mirror, you see the most critical version of yourself. I always joke about my ears being too big, right? When I say I go to another church and I have to put on their mic, I say I have to adjust this for jumbo, right? You know, I have to make it big. And I, I get some of that because um, when I was a kid, my mom would say I look like a taxi going down the road with both doors open. <laughs> if that doesn't mess you up, I don't know what will. Uh, but then I, I would, so I would tell people, like, you know, I would, I would say that about myself first to kind of steal the thunder. And people go, oh, I never noticed your ears till you said something about it. So great, now you're welcome. Now you're all staring and you can't stop. And now I'm self-conscious again. <laughs> so the rest of the sermon's like this. Um, but so I saw things that were wrong with me that nobody else even noticed until I brought it up. Because when you look in the mirror, you are so unbelievably critical at times. But there's nothing I can do. As a believer, I have been washed. I've been redeemed. I've been saved. So when he looks down, Christ, God the Father, sees the sacrifice that his son has made, and I've been cleaned. Some of you will remember um, the Nixon tapes, right? Uh, when President Nixon was caught and there were all these audio tapes, all of a sudden there was a blank spot on the tapes where supposedly what he had done wrong was basically confessed by him, but then there's a blank spa space in the tape, like it had just been erased. And so as they're going through the court trial, all of a sudden these tapes pop up, and it's very incriminating until it gets to the moment of the actual crime, and then it's blank. When I die and I stand before God, I have a blank tape. My crimes have been taken care of. And so then he says this, and this is the part that I really want us to focus on there this morning. Verse 10, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Isn't that powerful? Wow, you've been filled in him. And I read that and it's kind of like, okay, 
But if we understood that, I think we would all erupt in an hour long of applause. Because it is an absolutely insane statement to make. Maybe some part of it is the translation issue that we have here. A better way to say it is um, the more literal translation says, you have been fulfilled. In Christ, you have been fulfilled. Not will be fulfilled, not hope to be fulfilled, but you have been fulfilled. Now that sounds great. I want that. I want that. Because isn't that what most of you are looking for? Isn't that what most of us strive for? Like we're just trying to find some kind of fulfillment in our life and we will chase crazy things in order to be fulfilled. But there's this promise from Jesus that, look, if you would lean on me, I would fulfill you right now. That is a crazy, ridiculous statement. And if Jesus wasn't who he said he was, I would never believe anybody that said that. Can you imagine some person comes up and says, if you would just listen to everything I say, I would fulfill you, <laughs> right? If you're ever dating somebody and they say that to you, run the other way, right? If you would just listen to me, you would be fulfilled and happy, right? No, but when Christ says it, because I believe his promises, then I say, okay, I want that. I want to be fulfilled. I don't want to hope to be fulfilled. I don't want to dream of being fulfilled. I want access to what Christ says I have right now. See, some of the things that Paul is warning people against in this letter is not just trying to warn them like Jesus is sufficient to protect you from your fears. Because a lot of times we go to Jesus for our fears, don't we? We're afraid of this. We're afraid of that, right? Yeah. You, you lose your job or you've been single longer than you think you should have. You go to God because you have all these fears and you believe he can save you from your fears. But what he is doing a lot in this passage is he's letting them know that Jesus saves you from your hopes as well. See, you need to be saved from your fears and your hopes. Because if you have false hope or you put your desire for fulfillment in the wrong thing, you will be left not only unfulfilled, but heartbroken. What's the Proverbs that says, uh, uh, hope deferred? How's it go? Do you remember how it goes? Makes the heart sick. Hope deferred, like where you think something is going to make everything better, because who are we without hope? Hope is one of the most powerful emotions that you can have because you can be in the midst of the worst storm of your life, but if you have hope, then you can somehow persevere. So you have to be very, very careful what you put your hope in because hope that is delayed makes the heart sick, but hope that is put in the wrong thing, man, that breaks people. What if you put your hope in financial stability and you were almost there, and then the market crashes. And all of a sudden, you feel like, uh, I saw a gentleman the other day who lost his entire savings for retirement. He was getting close to retirement. And the things that he was invested in, he lost over uh, 
He didn't lose all of it, but he had lost all that he had gained. He had lost $44,000 in a matter of a week. Just, just made him sick. Why? Because his hope is in that. Now, I understand. That, I would feel sick too, right? I feel like I'm not above feeling sick if I lose that. But as Paul teaches, um, the whole idea of I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength isn't about your volleyball team, right? It is about whether I'm rich or poor, hungry or full. It doesn't matter where I am. I'm content as long as I have Christ. That's what fulfillment is. I, I, I really want us to understand what it is you need to be fulfilled so that you can begin to, to lean in on that so that we are a church full of Christ-fulfilled Christians. That makes sense? What do you need to be fulfilled? What do you need to be fulfilled? What does that look like? Can I make a couple suggestions? Okay, great. First, you need to have your needs met. It's hard to be fulfilled if your needs aren't met. And that's not just my opinion. Um, if you got your Bible, turn over to Matthew 6. Matthew 6, verse 25. <laughs> there's no rush. Hey, um, I know there, there's a lot of new believers in this church, and I pray that there's always a lot of new believers in this church because we always want to be passing the gospel on. And if you ever hear, you're like, man, these people are finding it fast. Don't feel bad that it takes you longer. It used to take them a long time too, okay? So I will always wait because I want you to see that this is God's word, not mine. So if it takes you a long time to get there, never feel embarrassed for that. It took all of us a long time to get there, right? There's 66 books in here, so it's, there's a lot to pick from. Matthew 25, chapter 6, verse 25, says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Don't you love that Jesus commands you not to be anxious? Have you ever been nervous or stressed or anxious or depressed and your spouse says, well, just stop being in that way? It's real helpful. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what will you put on? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. When... Adrian and I started uh, church planning. I had been on staff at a church in Bristow. And you know, I had been a former atheist and a, a wild child. And one week, one of my friends I'd always try to invite to church, I said, well, if you'd start one here in Tulsa, we would come. And that started me thinking, okay, I'll call him on that bluff. 
And so there was a lot of praying and, and seeking and searching. God, do you want me to do this? I knew when I left my job, I was going to lose my insurance. So I decided to go to um, get some blood work done. Just because I felt like it was time to start a church. But my wife's like, I don't feel that yet. I, don't, I haven't got the sign. And my wife is the one that has discernment, so I have to trust and wait on her. I go to get my blood work. My normal doctor isn't there. So I go and see this other doctor that I had never met. And he's asking me why I'm getting my blood work done. And I said, well, um, I'm thinking about becoming a church planter. And he goes, what's that? I go, well, it's somebody who goes and starts churches because the most unreached people group are pe- men ages 18 to 35. If you're a young man between the ages of 18 and 35, raise your hand. Do you recognize that you are the most unreached people group in the U.S.? And the fact that we have any of you here is just praise from the Lord. But I told him that, and he didn't say anything. He's like, okay, that's neat. Did my blood work, and I went home. That was on Friday. Saturday morning, the doctor shows up at my house. Now, that kind of makes you nervous when you do blood work, and he's there <laughs> at 9 o'clock in the morning knocking on your door. I'm like, uh, hello? He says, you got a minute? I said, yeah. He says, get in the truck. I said, Hey, Adrian, um, I have my phone on me. I hit nine and one. If something happens, I'll hit one again, you know. I said, well, what do you need? He says, I need your help. I got to go pick up some sod. This guy is weirding me out. I have no idea what is going on. And on the drive, he says, I really just needed to talk to you, and this was an excuse to come by your house. He says, I had a dream last night. I haven't been to church in a really long time, and I haven't tithed even longer. He says, but I had a dream last night. I am an emotional wreck this week, so uh, if I start crying, just leave me alone. He said, God told me I needed to start giving to your new church. So I want to be your first tither. I said, I haven't even quit my job. I, have, I, haven't, I don't have a church yet. I said, wait, wait until I like, go start one, because I have no idea how long it'll be. And he goes, no, I'm going to go ahead and start giving now trusting that you will actually go through with this. I go home and I tell my wife, she goes, there's our sign, you can start a church now. (laughs) Because what was she worried about? What was she worried about? How are we going to make it? So I, I literally quit my job and bought a house in the exact same week. With He was my only tither. He didn't even come to our church, right? Like, there, there wasn't a group of people waiting to go with me. So the very first sermon was my wife and I in our house, and she didn't like it. She's like, I hope you get better at this. She's like, I hope so too, honey. And I could go story after story after story after story after story of how I'm like, God, I feel like you're calling me to do something, but it is terrifying. He says, if you will lean in and trust what I had just said, do not be anxious. Trust me. Look, I will take care of you. And when he talks about meeting needs, it's not what you think you need. What does he say? He's like, you got food and clothes. You're good. I'm like, no, I, I have greater needs than that. He goes, no, you have greater wants than that. Those are your wants. He says, but your needs I've met. And if you look at the birds of the field, like they have all the food. You, you, you ever 
you ever see a, like a bird panicking and he has to like hurry up and get everything before it's five o'clock and he clocks out? He lives with the rhythm of nature. And it makes me think of that scripture about Christ. In him we live and move and have our being. And if you begin to figure out what it means to live in rhythm with Christ, it's incredible what Christ begins to do. So the first thing I would say is, you need to have your needs met. Okay, so you have your needs met. So the first step of being fulfilled by Christ is having your needs met. Then the second two ones I would say, and I've got this and I've said this many times before, but sociologists say that the majority of people make decisions based upon two things. Okay, pay attention. Two, Two things. Regret from the past and fear of the future. So most of the decisions that you make are either, I've already made those mistakes, I don't want to make them again, or I don't want to get hurt again. So you try to make different decisions, or you're worried about, I don't want to be poor, or I don't want to be lonely, and so then you make decisions because you're afraid of what the future could hold. Here's the beautiful thing. What has Christ done with your past sins? They're forgiven. What about your future sins, though? They're forgiven. So my past is taken care of, and I don't have to live a life based upon regret anymore. Very few of you actually could even live in the present because you're too worried. Some of you have sat here and you're already thinking about Monday and the things that you have to get done. You can't even sit for five minutes because your life is divided between the past and the future, and you don't know how to live now. But Christ says, I will take care of you tomorrow. You don't have to worry about tomorrow. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. I'm your God today, and I'll be your God tomorrow. And I already took care of all your mistakes in the past. So relax. I got you. Be free. Be fulfilled. Be full. And that's what Christ offers. And that's so beautiful to me. Because this anxious, just nervous world that we live in, Many people are under the impression that salvation is just escaping the future hell. No, salvation is about escaping the current hell that we live in. Where I don't have to live my life based upon my regrets from my past, which are many. Or my fears of the future, which are many. There are moments, if I lean in hard enough on my Savior, that I can be fulfilled right now. In verses 8 through 15, Paul says four times, in him, in him, in him, in him. In him is your hope, in him is your salvation, in him is your peace, in him is your freedom. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Can I tell another story I've already told 50 times? Because I have no new ones, right? When uh, I was a little kid growing up in church, the Sunday school teacher taught us a song in sign language, right? And it was, it was a great song. And I went home and I, I told my father, Dad, I've, I've learned a song in sign language. And he was very impressed. He's like, you learned an entire song? I said, I did. I learned an entire song in sign language. He said, would you show it to me? And I said, absolutely. So the, the sign for Jesus is this, right? And so I started going, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And then I got real dramatic, and it was the Jesus, Jesus. And I'm going on for about three or four minutes, and then my dad goes, 
Caleb, is that all the words to the song that you learned? I thought you learned a whole song. All you're doing is Jesus, Jesus, and Jesus over and over again. And I looked at my dad, and I said, but dad, you're the one who told me Jesus is all I need. <laughs> yeah, got him good, didn't I? Yeah. I don't need a complicated sermon. Jesus is all that you need. He goes, he gives a, an example that was very relevant to them in Colossians for what they were dealing with. It might not seem as relevant to you. If you got it, find it again, because I lost it. Okay. Colossians chapter 2. Verse 11. This is the example of what he's given. He says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So he uses this example of circumcision. Now, why is that relevant for them? Because one of the falsehoods that they were believing is that they had Jesus, they just had to do one more thing. Yeah, 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 saved by grace through faith, not by works, but just one work. They had brought their past into this new relationship with Christ. Their Judaism. They were Jewish. So their whole life, their entire history since Abraham, there was the act of circumcision, which was a promise of the covenant, the promise that God had made with Abraham. And they're like, no, you don't need the pain and bloodshed anymore. Jesus is the pain and bloodshed. All the things that you're trying to do to find some kind of spiritual hope and fulfillment is found in Christ. All your hope. All the things that you're looking for. That's it. That's all we need. There's nothing more you need to do to be fulfilled. You are a free person. You have peace. You have love. You have joy. Because Christ lives within you. It's all right there. Jesus has given you all that you need. Lean into it. Hold on to it. Do not believe that some greater satisfaction lies out there somewhere. Men have built entire empires trying to find what Christ has freely given. Amen? I'm going to pray. The band will come up. We're going to have a time of response. The altar is open here. If, if you are like everybody else in the world, struggling to be fulfilled, and today God began to click in your heart and mind that you have been chasing after false hopes, things that are incapable of fulfilling you the way that Christ is. Or maybe, how about this? Maybe you don't trust me when I say that Christ can actually fulfill you. Because that's such a big promise. That's such a big promise. But can I, can I tell you something? Scripture says, taste and see that the Lord is God. Start with small things. God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you in this small area of my life. And then when he's faithful, you be faithful. Grow on to the next one and the next one and the next one. Small little growth, man, leads to big growth down the line. Just begin to trust what is it that you need to trust God for today? Maybe it's salvation. 
If you've never given your life over to Christ, I'd love to pray with you that you can ask Christ to come in your life and give you that hope and promise and fulfillment that he said he would give. Christ told his disciples right before he died, he says, I'm going to give you a peace that surpasses all understanding that I do not give as the world gives. The world gives peace at a cost. Christ says, I paid the cost for your peace.